Welcome to the Disruptive Mindset Podcast, where we embark on a journey in our mini-series titled Beyond Labels, Unleashing the Power of Diverse Minds. I'm Emma, your host, and as a co-founder and CEO of Disruptive Hiring, I'm passionate about exploring the potential of diverse talent. Throughout this series, we'll delve into critical topics such as next generation and neurodiversity, evolving values, and the impact of technology on the way we work. And I'm joined by Carmen Jones, who's going to introduce herself. Hi, everyone. I'm Carmen Jones, your co-host, a principal consultant at Wipro specialising in talent and change. What a great opportunity this podcast has been. Understanding the unique strengths of the next generation, diversity, and how values have evolved. Conversations have been inspiring and what great fun it's been speaking with all the dynamic individuals. Welcome to our thought-provoking podcast. Today we sit down with Paul Bergen, who is the Managing Director in Soprasteria for the Public Safety Group. He is bravely sharing his journey as a neurodivergent individual with ADHD. Join us as we delve into the fascinating insights of how Paul has managed not only his career, but also ascended to the pinnacle of success. Discover his unique perspectives, challenges and triumphs, offering inspiration and understanding to all. Thank you very much for coming on, Paul, and I'm going to dive straight into questions this morning. Um, so I, what I'd like to know is a little bit about you, about yourself and your journey and your discovering and understanding of your neurodiversity. Oh, good morning. Thanks. Uh, okay. Well, I'm, I'm Paul Bergen. At the moment, I, I look after the public safety group in Stop Asteria, and that's our police and emergency services facing part of our business. And, uh, and I've, I've been there about four years or so. I started there as a CTO, but I've had a career broadly covering technology, some marketing and strategy functions, a lot of product management, uh, even some accountancy in there. So a, fair, a fairly varied career. And, and that may, may point back towards perhaps the, the clue I was missing earlier on in my life where uh, neuro, neurodivergent you know, fr from early childhood, but not knowing about it till, till my mid forties. So perhaps that variability of career is, is a clue that, that, that I, could, I could point back at later on in life. Um, so, I'm going to have to ask you to repeat some of your questions because you're going to realise I didn't write it down and you'll notice a short-term working memory gap. I'm going to give you some clues as to what's going on in my head while we're talking here. So if you repeat that for me, Emma, the whole question, I'm going to make a note this time around so I don't... No, uh, no, you don't good. need to. And I love it. You know, let's just go with the flow. You know, so it was just a little bit about you and, you know, discovering of your neurodiversity. So, I mean, so basically you said you didn't discover it till your 40s, right? So tell us a little bit about that. How did that all come? I mean, if you're comfortable... Sure, How did that yeah. come about? Well, I I always knew I was a bit different, and that sounds like the start of a film line there. So let's go with that and pretend it's much more uh, interesting than it really is. <laughs> so I always knew I had to fit in, and I always knew I had to put extra effort in to fit in, I think, and particularly in the workplace. So where I think my head would be screaming that things are wrong to me and we can change things for the better and this system isn't working and lots of different things. I didn't always feel empowered to do that early in career. Uh, so I, I noticed there were differences in how I thought and, and how I presented. I know I always struggled with timekeeping, for example. I struggled with deliverables. I struggled with getting stuff done on time. But I knew that when I got it done, it would be awesome or really good. <laughs> but then had a permanent guilt that I was thinking of things and never finishing them, you know, starting stuff and never getting around to it, never realizing potential. 
And that, I guess, comes from school too, where you're told, you know, if you're neurodiverse, you're often told you're lazy, you know, you're not getting stuff right, you're stupid. I'm dyslexic too, so that doesn't help. So um, you get these kind of pressures that fix a view that you're never quite doing enough. Stick that in a workplace where you're told, do it on time, do it well, do it first time, listen to your orders, deliver them quickly. So a highly structured environment, particularly in a corporate world, added to a fairly reason, you know, typical childhood, I suppose, where you don't fit in in a class quite so well, uh, adds to a series of assumptions about yourself that you realise later on probably aren't quite true. And I think that's probably a turning point before I realised I had ADHD, and that's the that's the clue there for the audience. <laughs> ADHD is, is the biggie one here. Uh, is is we did some psychometric work in an organisation as with some years back in that team and. For those who are familiar with Myers-Briggs, uh, you know, so, so, so psychometric tests, uh, I found as an ENTP, which I now know to be ADHD light. You know? So those who have those characteristics tend to share those with, with people with ADHD, or if you have ADHD, you're likely to come out of that type in Myers-Briggs. And, and that was probably the first time I could sort of quantify and, and summarise where my thinking was very different in terms of the, the absence of structure, but the increasing creativity and strategic thinking that was you know, consistent with that. So at that point, uh, probably sort of 10, 15 years ago, I started to realise these are assets that can be you know, harnessed as opposed to faults to be rectified, to concentrate on my strengths and start mitigating weaknesses you know, more through team than, than worrying about them myself. And that gave a big accelerant to my career, I guess, and moving on from running small departments to leading large areas and, and running businesses. Um, so moving on to, I guess, you know, diagnosis as having some, you know, uh, struggling at work a bit, I think, struggling in my personal life at home, you know, between family and children and, you know, all sorts of things. My wife, you know, we're, we're struggling with lots of different things. So I saw some help thinking I was probably depressed, if I'm honest, and, and yeah. you know, spoke to a GP, referred me on to a, to a psychiatrist. And, um, and, and after about half an hour talking to a psychiatrist, she said, well, I thought you came in here with, a, you know, with the big D about to be diagnosed, but, but I think there's something else going on. They mentioned ADHD and I sort of laughed and said, uh, that's children are around on tables, isn't it? At school, you know, that, that's what ADHD is. And he said, mm, you know, a bit more to it than that. So that, that's where it started. And, and he suggested that was a, an area to explore. So we did the, the series of tests and he said, you know, absolutely, you know, completely and uh, very, very clearly. That's that's where you are. That's really interesting. And it often comes with dyslexia, actually, doesn't it? From yes. sand, you know, so. Yeah, it's a little double whammy, you know. And it's good that dyslexia and attention deficit hyperactivity disorder are really hard to spell. It's cool <laughs> yeah. double whammy there, isn't it? Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think we're all dyslexic on it, so we all absolutely get it. You know what I mean? So, yeah. Just call it Bob or something, you know, use three letters. Why do we need that? <laughs> Give me the acronym any day, yeah. yeah absolutely. <laughs> That's really fun. Well, thanks for that. And thanks for being so open. And I think it's really, really helpful because there are so many, you know, especially when we were coming through school, because I'm, I'm assuming we're about the same age. Yeah. It was really shaming, wasn't it? You know, and it was yes. really sort of like, you're stupid. You don't know. We're putting you down in the dancers class. But actually, we're not. We're really, really highly functioning and highly intelligent, you know, and can see things from from different angles, you know, and uh, coming into the workforce is really stressful. Because <laughs> we yes, know what's is. going yeah. on especially if we're undiagnosed, you know, and I think that's really important to be open um, about that and sort of bring awareness. Uh, that's a really good point, Emma. And and some of the challenge, I guess, was coming back with that diagnosis and understanding what to do with this and and and, and starting medication that would, that would help. Um, and then what to do with that at work. My first fear was if I tell people at work, there'll be a, a, a stigma attached again and uh, I won't be seen as a leadership material. So I had a big challenge with myself about what to do about that. Yeah, and how and how I'm really curious about how that played 
Well, it, it was a good coincidence at the time. My uh, my line manager was was looking for um, well within within the team of senior leaders. We were investing in coaching for a few senior leaders who had further potential. And when I joined Stop Hysteria, the you know the psychometrics and tests I did showed further potential. So she she kind of invested in the executive coach at the time. So and I just started that process shortly after diagnosis. So I said to the coach, which is a very safe space, that I'd had this diagnosis, wasn't sure what to do with it. And we did an exercise, which I found really positive. And whenever I mentor anybody now, I, I usually start with this exercise, where to write uh, to, you know, a, a note about how well I'd come on in the last five years from the perspective of five years in the future. So I'd talk about what happened since now, how I'd grown in various areas, what role I was doing. So I looked back and, and decided that I talked about coming out with ADHD and use that phrase very deliberately. Because <laughs> it was attached to the unfortunate shame and stigma attached to people who have to come out for their sexuality. And I say have to because society demands it, but they shouldn't have to. You shouldn't have to declare who you find attractive or who you want to sleep with. That, that's not a thing. Mm. So uh, I found a similar thing. So I'd use that parallel of five years ago when I first came out and started that conversation. And then use that as a positive mover that, you know, coming out will be a thing. I'll talk about it relaxed and openly, as I would if somebody said, what are you interested in? I might say, I love playing music and I like playing rugby. And, um, and if somebody says, you know, oh, you think differently. Why does that say, oh, I have ADHD. It makes me think differently. And I'll talk about it as casually as if I'm talking about passing the salt or what I do on a Tuesday night. Yeah, I absolutely love it. I'm going to take, I'm going to pass this over to Carmen, actually, because... Um, Carmen, who's a younger generation, uh, the next generation of leader, I would say, um, yes. uh, who who has a really different um, take, I think, on dyslexia, right? Because she's younger, right? So she's come to mm. a different um, a different time, and she's yes. anyway. I'll pass it over to you, Carms. Thanks, there, Emma. And I think so many things there you've just said, Paul, that I can really resonate with, and it's so nice mm. to talk to someone. It's almost like you found you find your community. Someone's talking in a similar language, and you just you. It's an instant connection, isn't it? When someone has kind of a, yeah. a similar way of thinking. So, uh, no, and thank you for being so honest. And I assume some of the things you said around timekeeping, kind of, and uh, you know, unable to finish deliverables, I can really resonate with. So I, because I work in a consulting world, so I kind of I start these kind of big projects, and then I see something really shiny, and it's like I get really over distracted, and I just want to go and do that shiny thing, and I end up having to really pull myself back. So I I can really resonate with that. Yeah. Um, what I'd like to really understand from you is because you've mentioned quite a lot about about your challenges, but if we flip that on their head, what do you see as the kind of things that really accelerate? through having ADHD? Where are the positives? Mm, sure. And I think the challenges are very specific to where you are in your career and, and how self-aware you are and where you, where you brought yourself to. So, so I think I was, I was probably talking about challenges more to a historical point until I fully understood myself better, which started with Myers-Briggs and probably end, not ended, but you know, it was, was accelerated heavily by understanding how I thought better. So if, if if I'm going to talk from perspective today, and somebody said, you know, what, where are my where are my strengths and weaknesses? What would I bring to an organisation, for example? I tell you, I bring uh, infectious energy and enthusiasm to a to a level unparalleled by my peers and colleagues. <laughs> I bring fresh thinking every hour of every day without fatigue and without stopping. I don't get tired of new ideas. It accelerates me, it makes me better. The more stress you throw at me, the better I get. I'm anti fragile. I do not grind down under stress. I get better. <laughs> And uh, and unstructured thinking. Let's just pause there for a moment. Innovation and strategy, all the lovely words that our uh, our CEOs tell us about they need more of. If you spend a career starting being told what to do, 
the customer telling you what to do and you're doing what you should for the customer. We've got a series of structures there that start to limit thinking automatically. So let's start with an, an adage we use. We always do what's right for our customer. All organizations say that all the time. So one, what the customer says is true. You know? <laughs> and then do what our manager tells us to do. And we do it by a time and a date. So the, the, the limits on thinking are being pulled in closer and closer on a on a year-by-year year basis. Then, for example, let's say you, you get promoted, you start running a small team, you become a manager, and you get to distribute some of your work to other people. And that's fine, but you still have some deliverables. Then you become a leader, and you do less output yourself, but you're directing more. And all of a sudden, you get to a point where strategy and innovation and thinking become what you do every day. But most people, neurotypical people, have been rigorously training to do as they're told, do on time, do what's told, live in a structure for their entire careers, and they're really good at it, and that's why they got promoted. And then suddenly they flip and they're a leader and be open, inspire, dream, have a vision, and they can't do it. <laughs> and there's a massive difference between people who are going to neurotypical usually, who are ordered structures, delivering things day to day and getting senior positions, then wondering where innovation is going to come from. Because it's either not in their DNA or they've not done it for 30 years because they've not practiced those skills and those arts. And then somebody who struggles through career early because they're being forced to do things that are against their genes, against their flow. And then suddenly popping out thinking, wow, I've got through all that hard stuff. Now it feels really easy. I'm in my zone now, in my element. You get this point where the strategic thinking, the unstructured thinking, the connecting the dots effortlessly and easily with ideas and inspiring ways of thinking and talking are natural to you, but you've come through the hard bit. So they're very different perspectives. And we think of our CEOs, our leaders, one, you know, wanting more innovation in our organizations. It's there if we look for it. The thing is, we usually suppress it because our structures and processes don't allow one to express that early on in a career or even in a mid-career. But then we pop out and say, where is it? Where is it? And we try, then we try and buy it in a bit late by then. It's not in your cultural DNA. I love that. And I just have never thought about it from that angle about how you're kind of having to change into that leadership role. So I think that's words of wisdom there. So thank you, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a really interesting observation, actually. And yeah. You're absolutely right. From, from, from a coaching point of view, right? So, so we talk about divergent thinking and we, and, and as a coach, you know, and, and when we work on divergent thinking neurotypical people on divergent thinking we have to inject that but actually if you've got somebody who naturally thinks like that um you know it, it's like you know it you don't necessarily need to coach that because it's that it's, it's naturally there and i think and and so what i'm curious about is a problem solving in the corporate world right so how do we how do we encourage more neurodiverse people sort of up the ladder and and, and mm. where do you see that as I mean, do you see them as the the ultimate, you know, um, well, sort of plaster? I would say. What am I trying to say? <laughs> How do you see them coming up the ladder? Yeah. Sure. Um, and and we we have challenges with that too. So I guess we start right at you know attraction. If we look at demand generation for for large small companies, but but generally more more corporate focused companies. Because if you're a SME in a it, for example, in technology or something, you probably want to be a bigger company. No company says you want to reduce by 20% year on year. That's not a thing. Everyone wants to grow. So, so let's make an assumption. There's an element of structure in the organizations we're talking about here to attract to. We come to generating demand. If we'd be really brutally honest about conditions like ADHD and dyslexia, education terribly underserves them. So unless you're really smart or you're heavily supported or you're lucky and a teacher spots you and, and looks after you, you, you're not going to be served well by the education system. So, for example, Emma, you mentioned about being drop sets. I was dropped from a first set in maths to the bottom set in maths at school because I was too cheeky in class. 
So an academic punishment. So straight away that limits your potential inability because you know somebody didn't understand the difference between a understimulated child being cheeky to waiting for them in a class and a naughty child trying to interrupt class. But there's, there's, a, there's a gap. So let's start. So the ADHD population, you know, a large chunk of those don't make it through education full time. <laughs> of those that do, you know, manage to get through for one of the support reasons, those who are going to go into structured careers are quite small because it, it's not that appealing <laughs> as a rule. Now. You know, my route in was 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 bizarrely from a creative route. So I had, I had a I, I love music, wanted to play the guitar as a kid, and my parents got me a guitar. Didn't buy an amplifier too because it you know, was not within our means. But I went into a library, got books out, and learned to make one. So I got into technology via having a need I couldn't fulfil and being you know problem solving enough to go and solve that problem myself. Then found I could make the uh, the fancy effect pedals that go with it and all sorts of things and didn't make a few quid making them to friends. So an entrepreneurial sort of technology bind got me into that route and and that that's why I followed in. But there was no family friend who said I run a tech company, son. I'll give you a work experience placement. You know, <laughs> so I consider myself to be a statistical freak. You know, getting into technology. But I think if we start to demand generation, we have to have think think of structuring careers differently or almost unstructuring careers. <laughs> To enable neurodivergent, neurodiverse folk to uh, to want to access them in the first place. So, for example, the traditional job advert. You know, let's look at that. You must be confident, this, that, resilient, all these things. No, they're not. They're not. They're not the things we write on our adverts. Now, if we say, "Are you enthusiastic, energetic, willing to learn, and able to give us everything you've got?" That's very different from confident, committed, can deliver on time, and do as you're told. That will scare them away. So, let's think of the language we use, where we try to attract people. And do we need finished articles? Really? We've all recruited people, haven't we? And we often find that we know the sort of person we want and we'll disregard their skills and experience when the right person walks in the room. And that's not a, it's not a right person as they went to the right school, that's irrelevant to us. But we know when the people are ready to the right stuff, they have the right attitude, the right character, they're willing to learn, you know that they'll try really hard. And I find that goes way above and beyond academic qualification and experience in most cases. Some things you have to have, but, we know we've all have found people in teams, but we know they're going to go far because they've got something about them. Yeah. But our formal interviewing process usually negates that. We have to go against process to find those people. Why? It, <laughs> Why do we do that? It's absolutely true. And especially when you go through a number of interviews, you know, which you do, don't you? You know, when, when, yes. you're, when you're coming in and you'll get one that goes, yeah, I can see something here. And then somebody else, because it's our, you know, and that's where you come down to bias. You come down to, you know, sort of maybe a, an education bit that needs to happen at, at that sort of level. And you're absolutely right. Language. Um, and I, yeah. And, and I, I, you know, I'm really curious around how technology may help us advance. Um, mm. In, in this sort of area. Um, yeah, so if we want to recruit uh, people with a technical bent, but we don't want to restrict people in divergent, let's think of ways of constructing adverts that mean something to them, that will appeal to them. So mm -hmm. can you solve problems? Can you think on your feet? Can you absorb huge amounts of stress? Look at the, the, think of the things that pull to them, you know. Do you, do, you, do you find it, you know, hard to do structure? Because if somebody's gonna be a developer or a coder, do they have to come to work at eight o'clock and finish at five every day? No, they don't. They can code through the night. They can code when the offshore team are working. They can do what they want when they want. We don't need restricted hours. We say we want so much output from you a week, but we don't need you to do it here and now. So I think we can be much more flexible in how we think of drawing different sorts of people in. And if the pool is wide enough, then the cream will still float. So I, yeah, I, I I completely agree with you. And I think the you're right. The interview process now is it is very rigorous and it is within lots of corporate companies, and you have to go through you know so many different stages and. 
even it's even at the very beginning where you just kind of submit that job application and you're kind of you know the system can almost say no to you if you haven't got the right skills or the right qualifications so it's almost like you've taken that human element out so yeah it's a really difficult thing to try and break because they're trying to automate those processes I think coming I mean coming back to what Emma's just said there quite an interesting point around technology and I'm I'm quite because I work at a technologist as well so I find technology quite an interesting thing especially around accessibility for neurodiverse being dyslexic myself Chat GPT has been quite incredible because it's really helped me in how to structure emails or structure communications, and it can just take that anxiety away for me. Is there any other tools that you've kind of come across or kind of practices in that kind of world that have helped? Hmm. I think in terms of in terms of having to add structure, which I, I need to do and keep me focused. Uh, simple things like structuring your outlook. Most people work from their inboxes. I don't. I can't see it on my desktop. I have no notification to me of an email. And I think to myself, do I go to the letterbox in my home every three minutes and check I've got a letter, then act on it immediately and pay the bill that second or write back to the council about, no, I do not. None of us ever did. <laughs> so so let, let's not do the same. You know, Let's, let's decide what we're doing and do it. So I, I work from you know, a, a simple principle. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll start my 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 day. I'll, I'll have planning support heavily from a, from a PA. I'm lucky enough to have that now. But but there are ways to do that if you don't. You know, you can you can PA yourself by giving a period of time every morning to do that if you need more structure. I think what's bothering me today and the three things that I think are actually on top of my mind are nearly always the things I need to do and the most important things to the business. So if there's 15 emails saying I need you to look at this and look at that, if you leave them all day, nine times out of ten, somebody else solves them for you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But the general, if it's coming from your level or above, it probably needs looking at. If it's below your level, it probably doesn't because they'll manage it themselves. And that's pretty true. And otherwise, you get a dependency culture where you end up doing things for the team who are meant to be doing things for you. Mm. And I'm blocking things for them to do better is one thing, but making decisions on stuff that you can ask other people, the team to make decisions for is, is usually where it's at. You know, you can say, actually, I don't need to decide this. You, you can do that yourself. And the, the two or three things rule really works well for me because it doesn't involve technology. And the less technology that can distract you in this day and age of such distractible technology is really important. So my phone has no notifications at all. I don't know if somebody's rang me or not, you know, and I have an app on there that switches the phone off for a period of time. It can't notify anything and it grows a forest. It's lovely. It grows little plants for you. And if you don't, you know, if you do as you're told, you're a good, good you know, good chap and you don't do, don't, don't look at your phone for 15 minutes, it grows a pretty little tree in the background. That's nice. There's nothing else. That's, that's really useful. <laughs> I have these, uh, I don't have them downstairs at the moment, but these are uh, large dice that have numbers on the side for times of minutes. And I flip the minutes over and a buzzer goes off so many minutes. And that's when I am allowed to look at my phone or distract myself. So I have a guitar down here next to me. I'll play that when I get bored every now and then. And then when the buzzer goes off after five minutes, I have to stop and get back to work, for example. But I've allowed myself enough distractibility to keep going and keep my dopamine higher, but not so much that I don't get stuff done. So there's also things one can do to allow artificial structure. Because the key with ADHD is that while you know intellectually how to do things, how to structure, how to structure somebody else. So if one of you came to me and said, please help me, I don't know how to structure my day. I don't know how to write this thing. I can tell you everything. I can, I can you know, tell you how to manage a project beautifully. Do it myself? No, no, it's not, it's not coming from inside, you see. So I need external rules to tell me when time is, how to ordinate. And that's why I create those rules around me. So they're the kind of structures one can use, and it can be within technology, it can be with outside technology. But particularly with ADHD, you have to understand you have to put external structures in. You need clocks in every room. And if you check when you're late for work, you'll look around and realize the room without the clock is the one we spent the most time. Wow. I, do you know, 
I've never thought about it like that. So I, I since I'm similar, so I can't have a social media on my phone because no, it just distracts me. So I, I've never thought about it from that way of kind of, oh, it's the notifications and things. And it, that's really, really interesting perception. Um, and also about time, almost like that focus time, time boxing yourself into certain activities to, to bring your structure. Yeah, the key self-awareness here, Carmen, is that an ADHD brain, and, and I say that, but it relates into dyslexia too, but a neurodiverse brain in general on, that, on the creative side, you know, which dyslexia is perhaps included, it doesn't measure time or see time like neurotypicals. And that's that's absolutely true. So neurotypicals, they can see time, they see they, they sense it moving. You know, I do not. They'll have a sensation of time going. Now, if I've gone to meet you at three o'clock and, and Emma, you know this because I've met you in person and I was late and I always will be. So, you know, you allow that into your schedule for the next time. <laughs> if I'm going to meet you at a certain time, when I meet you, that's the time I meet you. So if I meet you at three, when I get to you, in my head is three o'clock. It could be 10 past, it could be 10 to, it's going to be 10 past, being honest about it. Because I see time as it flows in front of me and I, and I approach the time when I'm doing something. Now, the time between, a time, you know, between appointments, that, that's invisible to me. I cannot get my head around that. So if I'm meeting you at three and then Carmen at half three, the fact you're on different sides of the city is irrelevant to my head. In my head, won't, won't compute that one. Intellectually, I know it, but I don't feel it. Mm. So I need external stimulus to tell me what's fashionable, where the march of time goes on. Mm. Now, when it comes to thinking about the future, that's a wonderful, beautiful thing because your mind expands in so many ways because you're not constraining again by time, never mind other thoughts because it's so unstructured you know it's like a data lake everything is there to, to be connected as opposed to we can't do that because it's only three months after that it doesn't work like that for us yeah so it's it's almost like from what i'm hearing is like you really i mean you know it really helps to understand how your brain works and i think you know taking some and self-reflection because then actually you can educate other people this is how i work this is how i operate um you know which i think is actually equally as important um yes um absolutely key so um what do you think companies can do to foster the culture and acceptance around this so you know what I'm really curious about is that you know you're at a senior level within your organization and you're very open and you've been really transparent are you having an effect internally around processes around you know being more acceptance And, and what about your team have you have you you know actively you know um brought in neurodiverse people so tell me tell me mm. about that yeah sure so in terms of the, the wider organizations and how we get more acceptance uh, we have inclusive networks in in the stockless area and we had them before i joined there's a, a women's inclusive network uh, uh a black minorities inclusive network religious ones all, all sorts are our plus network for lgbtq plus um, so a, a variety of different networks, and I noticed an absence of neurodiversity. You know, when 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 I was first thinking about this, and decided to start a neurodiverse inclusive network, which which really helps, and and partly because it gives a a voice and support outside line management to to, to members of staff and their families. It's a place for uh, allies as well as people who have conditions to talk and be comfortable, and it's a place to disseminate information and support for each other too. And it gets in the agenda of, of, of the board as well, because, the, you know, a, a board member has to sponsor each uh, each one of the networks. So, it's, so it becomes, you know, a voice in reality. And the purpose of them really, is, I guess, is is a combination of equality, accessibility, inclusivity, the, the, the sort of standard issues that have faced, you know, female employees for many, many years to get, you know, e- e- equity and pay, for example, and, you know, eliminating racism, uh, sexism, all, the, all the, the, the good things that society should be doing anyway, but we find particularly important in the workplace. 
So networks, I guess, are supportive and really helpful. And that's that's the place to read and get information together. But I think also most important is 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 behaving and, and talking it and not you know not 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 letting things go by. So for example, um if uh, you know there's a colleague I you know I, I work with who's 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 autistic and uh, not open about it but but tells me about it and they prefer to work in quiet places in offices they use noise cancelling headphones and I decided that was an important part of our company's procedures that if somebody needs noise cancelling headphones to work in an open office and they need to work in an open office that that should be on the company they shouldn't have to put that themselves they can be expensive items of the kit so things like that become something you can get in Stereo. you know you can uh, we've got quieter rooms where you can choose to work in the open offices as opposed to very busy rooms. So if you need the stimulation of a busy office, you can go there. If not, that's okay. It's not a thing you have to ask. Much like we wouldn't expect a wheelchair user to have to ask somebody to help them up the stairs. Yeah. <laughs> they can enable themselves by applying for it themselves and doing it. Um, so trying to move to a culture where it's not a case of acceptance, but it's almost transparent inclusivity where it's, which is, where it's normalized mm. that people think, behave, and act in different ways. Um, Techniques like, you know, a map of me, you know, or which is a, a straightforward, you know, a piece of paper which says, I like to be managed this way. I like to be communicated to this way. You get the best out of me by doing this. If you do this, I probably won't react very well, you know. And then you get to a, a very human level where when you think about it, you know, Emma and Carmen, that's true for everybody. Now, now Emma, you may or not be neurodiverse. You may or may not have, uh, you know, three or four characteristics that require network support intervention. But you may just not like the noise of an office and you may just want to have a quiet day. <laughs> and that should be okay. And you shouldn't have to come up with three labels to justify why that is in a really mm. humane, kind world. Mm. So we're trying to get to the ultimate position where anybody can be managed within broad guidelines in a way that makes them feel great and be their best at work, which is what we want. For a great work-life balance, we want people to be the best they can be, be the best version of their authentic selves, and be supported by their organisation while doing so. And that goes well beyond networks, neurodiversity, your gender, your sexual preference. And, and, it, and it also buys into the concept, I guess, that most inclusivity has traditionally has been focused on demographic and diversity inclusivity, you know, so colour of skin, you know, whether, whether you present as male or female, or sexuality. If we really get down to it, the, the real thing that affects inclusivity, in my view, is cognitive, how you think. Mm-hmm. Because the colour of your skin doesn't matter in a boardroom, assuming we've got past the race of the battle. But it really does matter if you've all been educated at the same schools, gone to the same universities, no 30s in the same corporate identity companies. <laughs> That's going to get much more risk of a group think, attitude to risk, you know, openness to different ideas and variables, than perhaps if you're coming from different demographics, but you've still, through, still been to the same types of schools, the same peer groups, the same social pressure, the same middle-class strata of education, all that kind of thing. So we get to a different level of, of inclusivity and diversity, perhaps there with cognitive diversity and, and potentially class diversity too, which again is, has a big impact on, on the shape of leadership teams. Mm, absolutely. Totally agree. Yeah, I completely agree as well. And I think it's such a uh, someone said actually, it was only yesterday. Someone said to me, you know, with D D and I, um, that they actually feel that it's almost worded in the wrong way, and that I should be first, and that inclusivity should be first, because then you can bring diversity and kind of equality and stuff. So, and I think that kind of really leads into what you've said there, actually, Paul. So, yeah, that, that, that's really interesting. I think for me, um. What I would be interested in is just understanding because I'm, you know, I'm still kind of I'm in that kind of middle stage of my career where I'm still kind of looking to kind of come up in the ladder and stuff. 
and this isn't just for me, I think this is out for everyone, but kind of what advice you'd give someone on, that was neurodiverse looking to progress their career? Hmm. I think key is getting understanding from your line manager and getting a good relationship where they can uh, not just accept you for who you are, but celebrate the, the difference and gifts you bring and see the value in them. And I'm lucky enough to have her. I've got a fantastic line manager. She absolutely gets me. There's a, there's no kind of, I say, simple things like pressure on being late. Uh, you know, uh, I'm courteous enough to try not to be late and I try to be super early for, for things. But when I'm five minutes late, it's, it's never discussed. It's never an issue. There's no, there's nothing around it. Um, managing around deadlines and such likes. Uh, you're going to have to give me the true deadline, not one with three days of packed space that I know people do because they want to see it early and it sits in the box for three days. So there's an honesty there that makes it easy. And getting to that level of honesty with with the person who's in charge of sort of looking after your career is is really important. And and that may take a bit of time to build the relationship. And if that doesn't really work and you're struggling, then I'd strongly suggest finding a different line manager as possible. <laughs> but 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 also a a neurodivergent mentor or coach is, is is really important, and there's a difference between the two. But but mentorship is really important because they'll give the well, this worked for me, and it may work for you, and that guidance, you know, in real life with with absolute support on on your career. So I'd find the two go hand in hand, and the support of the the coach I've had, who does mix between mentoring and coaching, just because the the relationship we have um, has been has been really helpful too. But that that mentor who will know the steps you need to get through and the pitfalls you may find and how they've approach them before and succeeded before you know the head of you in career i say is really important but the two things honesty and openness in relationship is is absolute key um and if the culture of the organization you're in doesn't respond to that well and appreciate that i'd, I'd strongly argue that you need an organization that does because some will flourish with it and some won't yeah and and you know what i couldn't agree with you more in the in the respect if you haven't got the right environment whatever you do you know whatever you do there's you know you're gonna you're gonna find it difficult aren't you you know if you have you haven't got that support and you've mentioned coaching a couple of times actually how important has that really been for you having having that sort of safe space it's been fantastic really really important um particularly early on and i think you know, unpicking some of the things one picks up earlier in career before diagnosis, particularly. So some of the, uh, I suppose, self-imposed limits on my own thinking, you know, some shying away from things. You can sometimes have a life where you're so used to being the odd one out and different. You do everything in your power to stop being that for a long period of time. And then when you suddenly, you know, get used to acceptance, then having to unpick some of that and saying, now allowing yourself to be even more different because you've got some gifts and skills and experiences that are really valuable but you've been hiding them under a bushel a bit because you don't want to stick out even more than you already did <laughs> so some of those things are, are really really good so now i'm quite happy and comfortable to say yeah. i'm an incredibly smart guy who has a particular way of thinking and i'll have more ideas by breakfast than you lot will have by the end of the year so believe in that and i'll look after you <laughs> and don't believe that at your peril you <laughs> know it's okay to say that i love it because you almost become it's almost it gives you permission to become yourself doesn't it and to actually wake up in the morning and go hello me you know instead yes. of going with that mask on to work which so we so often do when we're when we're sort of younger I know Carmen's had a coach for um quite a few years and it's been I know it's been invaluable to you hasn't it Carmen it really has and I think I think you're right yeah it's a, it is a safe space and I've learned so much about myself and it's given me well, it's given me my structure, I guess, and my plan for where I want to get to and how I want to get there. So it has been invaluable. Yeah. yeah that's really good. And, and being able to be yourself, it sounds such a 
it sounds almost trite, but when you've not been able to be yourself for so long, it's a wonderful thing. Yeah, I completely agree. Well, but I think so many people do turn up because, because it, you know, they separate work and home and, and, and that's okay. But actually when you, you know, you step out of your door and you've got to become a completely different person, I think that's when the trouble starts. So I think you can maybe carry that on for a bit. But actually when you start to get a bit older, I think it becomes really, really difficult and exhausting, actually. It's so very exhausting, the same person here is the same person you are at work and be accepted for that. I think it's super important. Well, let's also bear in mind, uh, Emma, that, that stepping out the door isn't a thing for many people now. Oh, good point. <laughs> you know, we don't step out the door. So to be your work persona at home and then your home persona when, you know, your your, your wife or husband and children come home at four or five or six, or whenever they come in from their work or school day, or your partner comes home and then suddenly slipping back into home mode. I mean, that's that's not easy to do, is it? You know, we're no. talking about, you know, mm. twisted, you know, twin personalities here. So the, the very concepts of home and work have blurred so much that that's even more important and have the psychological safety in your environment at work to be able to be yourself, to be your vulnerable self, your authentic self, and, and all those things is essential. And and I find people respond to leaders much better who show their vulnerability and 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 accept that. It's not a case of, hey, we're all the same, we have different roles, but we are the same. We're all people. We all have families, we have wants, we have needs, and we are the same. We're all humans doing our best to support ourselves and and or our families in whichever way we can. And it just happens that we're doing different roles that key into an organization in a different way. It doesn't mean anybody is better or worse. We have to work together and there's no need to pretend to be high, mighty and infallible because none of us are. Yeah, and yeah. you know what, Paul, I think it's such an important message for the younger generation that are coming into work. I mean, we didn't have it when, when we were coming into work. You know, our messages right. were, you turn up at work, you're on time, you work your ass off, <laughs> you know, and, and that's what you do. And, you, you know, and I, but I think now I think the messages have to be different because, you know, the, the uh, Gen Z are much more transient, you know, they're much more out there, they know what they want a little bit more, not that they don't work hard, because I've been told that by the Gen Zs and the ones that we've interviewed, they work really hard, and they're very serious about their career, they just want different things, but I think, you know, hearing your messages around being yourself, you know, and um, being able to be vulnerable, I think is, um, is, is absolutely key, because it, 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 you know that that's all about the mental health bit for me which is um super important so i've got one last question for you that i'm going to dive on in there um so 18 year old self take yourself back to that 18 year old self what would your what would your message be to yourself today hmm. that's a good one um the flippant one that went through my head first, and I thought this is going to be broadcast as I point this podcast. We're going to listen to it, so I have to be fairly sensible. <laughs> no, <laughs> I don't, please. Go there. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think the really obvious one is it's okay. You know, don't worry about all the stuff you're worrying about. Um, let's think. I, th I think the, the, the earliest one, I'd, I'd probably whisper in there and say, you've got this, uh, you know, this, this way of thinking that's unique and very, very special. And the quicker you learn about it and learn to be yourself, the better. And, you know, perhaps back then when I was 18, you know, in want to be the uh, early 90s, it, it, you know, the world wasn't quite ready for such difference and divergence. I think we had them in the world. Clearly we did. They didn't just start in the year 2000, you know. Uh, we had them. We all from people like Einstein, didn't we? And <laughs> these wonderful, great, quirky thinkers in time or the eccentric gentleman who used to, you know, wear his suit and tie to go to the corner shop and speak in a different way. You know, we always had people who were very different thinkers. 
But I think to myself, I would say I'd, t- I'd tell myself that I'm different for a very good reason. I'd, I'd tell myself how to be more aware. I'd tell myself uh, the structures and things don't matter. And I tell myself to be kind to myself. Love it. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Be kind to yourself and learn to be yourself. I think what brilliant messages. Yeah. Be you quicker. <laughs> <laughs> I think they're great messages to have on. So thank you so much for coming on our podcast today. I have thoroughly enjoyed this conversation and I think um, there's some wonderful messages out there. So thank you very much, Paul. Thank you. You're very Paul. welcome. Thank you very much, Carmen. Thanks, Emma.